Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, the 26th of April. Well, the Raptors stay alive, so we've got that going for us in the city. A game six now on Thursday night. No doubt we'll be previewing that over the next couple of days, but what a vibe, what a buzz. Um, We'll also talk about uh, the NDP plan for getting elected and the promises they plan to keep when they get elected if they do on June 2nd. Merritt Stiles will join us. She's NDP education critic and MPP for Davenport. We'll speak to a guest as well about bringing the Conservative Party of Canada back towards the centre and whether that matters come next federal election. It's a ways away, but no time like the present to start that plan. we got a great show ahead for you. Toronto Today begins now. Andrea Horvath. This is a big election for her. I don't know that it's her final shot at being premier. She had a good shot in 2018. She's been at this quite a while. Let's recap some of this for you. This is sort of like, this would be on the back of Andrea Horvath's baseball card. A long time MPP. She ran for the federal election in 1997. That's a long time ago. But so she is a veteran. She runs against Dalton McGinty of the Liberal Party. She runs against Tim Hudak. Of the conservatives, the thought was Hudak, it was all paved. That road was paved for Tim Hudak to become the next premier of the province. I remember that really well. And it ended up being a liberal blowout. And to some extent, 53 seats for Dalton McGinty, 37 for Tim Hudak. And Andrea Horvath got the NDP on the map, an improvement up to 17 seats. Uh, prior to that, remember, John Tory was the conservative leader prior to that. Now it's Howard Hampton's last election. She took the NDP from 10 seats to 17 seats. What about three years later? Well, Kathleen Wynne takes over for Dalton McGinty. Is that going to work? Can she get elected? She sure can. Majority government. She had more seats and a higher voting percentage than McGinty. What's going on here? This doesn't look like this is going to work for Tim Hudak. And it wasn't from that point on. 58 for the Liberals, 28 for the Conservatives, a moderate improvement for the NDP. They get to 21 seats. But it's four years ago. That's the great leap forward. They become the official opposition. They go from 18 seats prior to the election to 40. They go to 33.59%. So this is a bit of a steam train that's growing ground here. Let me remind you again, back in 2007, she's at basically 34%. Howard Hampton was at 167 Andrea Horvath's first election, she's at 22.7. So this is a big change. But is that next step possible in this 2022 provincial election? Right now, the polls don't seem to think so. There is momentum for the Ontario Liberal Party. There is obviously, post-pandemic, a great hesitancy to switch out incumbents. We've seen that all over the globe. We've seen that in provincial elections so far across Canada, and we now have seen that in one federal election during the pandemic where we had almost identical results for the Liberal Party, holding on to a uh, minority government but propped up and helped out by Andrea Horvath's own party in the federal ranks of the New Democrats. So yesterday, Andrea Horvath reveals a uh, platform that she hopes, hopes will get her elected and get the NDP into office. I've only been there the one time in our existence. And there's some big, big promises, big promises. In fact, some people are being critical of the promises. Martin Reg Cohn wrote in the Toronto Star, Andrea Horvath's New Democrats are starting to look a lot like Doug Ford's PCs. The NDP is playing with numbers when it says it can freeze taxes and increase spending. So there is that element of wondering, how do you fulfill the wish list? Where's the money to pay for it? If you're not going to raise taxes, how can you pay for more things? A lot of examples of this, one of which I want to drill down on a little bit. Here's Horvath suggesting she knows how those costs will be covered. When it comes to a full costing of our plan, uh, once we see the budget, we'll be able to provide those numbers and you'll you'll definitely get it, uh, get that information before uh, the campaign's over. So sometime during the campaign, we'll be able to provide those details. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, those details might need to be coming before June 2nd, before we all go and vote. But the NDP are out early with this. I want to remind you, Merritt Stiles, uh, NDP education critic, will be on the show at 745. I always look forward to our conversations. So be wary and aware of that. Looking forward to the chat. Uh, Horvath has done a good job in noting 
the buddies of Doug Ford. She's pointed out. She loves that word, the buddy word. Remember, remember the buddy system at camp? She likes the buddy word when it comes to the premier. And she basically says the same thing Doug Ford was saying about Kathleen Wynne in 2018. At some point, the premier lost her way, in this case, his way, and has got the wrong priorities. They've decided at the last minute to start throwing these promises around when they've had the last four years to show people that that that's not where their priority is. Doug Ford's priority has always been his buddies, uh, and it's going to continue to be his buddies. Love the buddy system. You, you, honestly, it's probably smart to go there and and play uh, play the game that way. No question about it. The NDP also, and I don't know whether this has been strongly influenced by the federal NDP concept of student debt. Maybe you're watching this south of the border. Uh, Joe Biden ran on a campaign promise when he ran against Donald Trump of canceling a lot of student debt. Now, um, I think there's an element of meeting in the middle ground here. Okay, I think everyone deserves accessible education. We shouldn't force people out on their dreams because they're not smart enough or they can't pay tuition prices. But I'd make the point that when it comes to tuition, those numbers have pretty much held in the last 15 years. You know it's not what it is in the United States. You know you're not paying $25,000, $26,000 uh, to go into an undergrad program. You're paying about $8,800. In some cases, you're paying 9500 In some cases, you're paying 8100 But it's right around that principle. I can tell you, you don't want to know how long it's been since I've been out of co uh, college, but I'll tell you, my recollection is paying about $3,700 an undergrad year for, uh, for, for, uh, for tuition. And I think if we move up for the cost of living, that's the biggest factor right there. So the NDP says they're considering wiping out student debt, something, again, Joe Biden south of the border is going to have a lot of problems with. That's a lot of debt to get canceled here. But here is where I draw the line on some of this. I don't love the idea of making university free because I think you de-strip its value. Let me explain why that is. I, I remember the junior hockey team I worked for, the Saginaw Spirits, started out their games. They moved from North Bay, and they gave me the job, can you imagine that, of uh, of play-by-play -play guy. So I'm up as the play-by-play -play commentator on the radio. I'm driving 80 miles to home games, but it's okay. I'm 29 years old. It's a great job. I'm doing the morning show in Detroit. Life's really good. So I'll say, I'll drive the 80 miles. No problem at all. Um, but what they did do was prioritize the value of the ticket. They didn't want to give tickets away and quote unquote paper the house. Sometimes organizations do that, but then you devalue the ticket. What happens when you come and want to and you want somebody to pay for it a little later on? And this is where I'm going with free tuition. You're devaluing tuition by just giving it away to everybody. Here's the other thing. Why should rich kids and rich families get free tuition? Why should they? But they're well aware they've been saving for college for it. I can make the same argument about $10 day, a day daycare. It works for some people. It's unnecessary for others. We should charge some people for daycare. We should charge some people to go to private school. We should charge some people to go to university. It has value. So outside of the uh, tremendous headache, how do we make a free tuition plan with all with, with, with the province of Ontario? And what will it mean? Can someone from British Columbia, where they don't have free tuition, come to Ontario and go to school for free? Are we charging them? What about international students? Do international students have to pay, but kids that are grow up in Ontario or British Columbia don't? So there's a headache right there. And it looks more to me, to me, and I don't mind saying we should follow through on some elements of of making sure social justice works for us but it looks like a flawed instrument of social justice to me anyway you're disproportionately handing money to the wealthy and the wealthier the canadian the more that likely they are to spend on post-secondary education there was a stats canada survey six years ago i saw last night that showed nearly 80 percent of kids from the richest 20 percent of canadian households go to post-secondary school you're not doing any favors. Take their money. Use it for infrastructure. Use the money from a certain uh, economic threshold to help those that are more um, less for uh, to help those that are less fortunate, to help those that are disenfranchised, to help those that may not get to go otherwise. But you eliminate tuition fees. Those benefits. Do you think they proportionally accrue to all Canadians 
or do they disproportionately accrue to wealthy Canadians? They were already sending their kids to university. You're giving them something they were planning to do and kind of happy to pay for for free. Okay? We don't do this with grocery bills. We try and give food to the people that need it the most. But people making a combined $380,000 who live in Rosedale, they don't need free groceries. They don't need a tax off their gas. They don't need any of that stuff. It's nice to have it, but it doesn't mean very much at the end of the day. We know that the United States has the world's most expensive post-secondary education. And when Bernie Sanders ran in 2020 on uh, going into the uh, the election, the Biden-Trump election, and he said, I want to make free tuition a big part of my platform. And a bunch of studies came out and said, you're going to help rich students. Relatively affluent students will get the most significant benefits. And besides that, what do you think the most expensive part of university is? Give you a hint. It ain't the tuition. <laughs> it's living. It's paying for public transportation. How about a bus pass or a transit pass? We had that in 1991 when I started university. What about rent subsidies and food subsidies if you're a university or college student? All for it. Fantastic if you're under a certain threshold, but you are paying through the nose for those things. Tuition might be about 22% of your expenses. Well, what about the other 78? Okay. I can make the case if you really want to make education more affordable and you're a government, how about bursaries and you target them at lower income students? We don't want to lose promising students from tougher, more marginalized backgrounds, but we also don't want to give rich kids from rich families a free ride it makes no sense so it, and and by the way is it going to put more low-income kids in university we don't know that for sure we don't know we hope so but many people look at, at studies that note that cultural factors not household income are a more relevant predictor as to whether a canadian youth going to university or going to community college or not the children, by the way, of visible minority immigrants go to university at a rate 20 points higher than other Canadians. So that's good. That's really good that we're leveling the playing field. You may have also noticed we've got a huge problem getting men to go to university now. The number in the States, I'd love to see a uh, contrasting number for Canada, is 43% of people who go to university in the United States now identify as male. 43. That's 57 that aren't. That's changed a lot since I went. Ideally, it's a 50-50 split. So look, you can keep tuition low, but making it free, that's a pretty blunt instrument, and that's not going to change who's going to university, and you're giving away millions of dollars of uh, for, uh, of tuition and otherwise, and extraneous costs, books, et cetera, et cetera, computers from people who can afford it. What's your thought on that? 289-975-1640. I reject that principle outright. I want university to mean something, Okay. And yes, it's going to be <laughs> the struggle of, uh, of of my lifetime to make sure I keep paying mortgage payments and pay for my two kids to go. But we've budgeted for that. We're ready for that. And if we can't handle it, we'll take loans out. We'll find a way. Make it less afford. Make it more affordable for those who can't afford it. But for those who can, we don't need it to be free. We want it to have value. So we want kids that are there and getting their money's worth. Getting no money's worth doesn't make sense. I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, there's not a lot of unity, even in the United States, obviously. you got look at the Republican Party right now. There's those now. There's felt like there was when Donald Trump was president. But you're getting more people speaking out saying, that's not a road I want to go down again. I, I, we got to have better direction than that. But you see it in the Democrats, too. That was pronounced when Joe Biden had his State of the Union address in late January. And then you had a response that was broadcast um, from one of the members of the quote-unquote squad saying, this is what we like, this is what we don't like. That's not speaking with one unified voice, and there's a lot of question about it when it comes to the uh, Conservative Party of Canada, for sure. So there's a new advocacy group uh, in terms of allowing sort of that landing spot for people that feel very in the center, that might feel politically homeless, that aren't attracted enough to some of the elements of the conservative party that some deem concerning same way. There's people really frustrated and they say, I don't want to vote for Justin Trudeau again, but I need another option. So that is going to be called center ice conservatives. And I want to bring on somebody uh, who knows a little bit about it. She's run for uh, election a couple times in uh, the Montreal area. And Francis uh, joins me now. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time and getting up early. 
Oh, thanks so much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. You, uh, you're quoted in the uh, Toronto Star story, and I think you're right on the money, but I want to ask you when you think this started. I actually think people just don't understand what the parties represent and what is the center anymore. So when I hear people describe, man, uh, that that I feel politically homeless or I just don't have a, I don't have a spot anymore, I can't recognize the parties and their principles, when do you think that started and how did we get to where we are now? Because I think you're right. Yeah, that's a really good question. I have to say that when I was named as a candidate in 2019, you know, I was so excited and gung-ho and I'm doing my door knocking and what people were talking about at the doors was so different than what, you know, the media tells us is important or what even the party tells us, we, you know, this is the party line on this issue or that issue. And that's not what I was getting at the doors. And even in a lot of the descriptions I was getting from people, I felt, I'm a conservative. I'm running for the mm-hmm. conservative party. I don't recognize myself in what I'm hearing from a lot of people about what they think is the conservative party. So I don't know when it started, but definitely for me, it was right out of the gate as soon as I actually joined the party and uh, was a candidate. I mentioned the U.S. politics. That was my major when I went to Western. I wrote a couple of papers on the, on the concept of a Reagan Democrat, and we would see that constantly. Um, I think even in our elections, there were a lot of people that, that had backed the liberals that said, I'm with this Brian Mulroney guy. I think we had people frustrated with um, the conservatives after two elections, and they went right, you know, running to Jean Chrétien in 1993. I don't know that we see that anymore. It feels more tribal. It feels more like you're rooting for your team or a logo or a color way more than we are sort of swinging like a pendulum back and forth. And and in the, in that, in that big fleshy middle that we used to have. Yeah, that's, that's actually very true. And I think it's very easy to get polarized in when it comes to elections, when it comes to, you know, teams sometimes or anything like that, you kind of feel like you've got to root for this one team, no matter what. And anything the other team does is horrible, which isn't true. There are sometimes, very rarely these days, but sometimes something the government will say or do that sort of says, speaks to me. And I sort of say, yeah, that makes sense. I may not agree with all of what they do, but, you know, on that particular issue, I don't disagree. And I wish people would understand that it's okay to sort of say that's all right on this end, but I don't like this. And I just feel people... You know, honestly, people are busy. People don't have time to to read and to see all the details. And they get their news from headlines. And headlines really don't inform us. They're just meant to catch our attention so that we can read the article. But you can't just go with the headline. And unfortunately, that's what people do nowadays. How did you feel after both elections where the conservatives win the popular vote in 2019 pre-pandemic with Andrew Scheer and then in 21 in the midst of the pandemic with Aaron O'Toole and there's an immediate move um, to oust that particular leader? Are, are, did, did those ring true the same with you or did you say, oh, we should have stuck with one guy longer than the other? How did, how did that land for you? Well, I think for uh, what happened with Aaron personally, I just don't think it was reasonable. He became the leader of the Conservative Party in the middle of the pandemic. And then within a year, he was running an election within the pandemic. And Mm. so I don't think he got an opportunity to be known by people, to be seen by people, to be heard by them. If you if you sit down with Aaron, he's a very real person. He actually answers questions, unlike our current prime minister, which I don't know. I, I can't understand why our prime minister gets such a pass from people when he repeatedly doesn't answer a question. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of the missteps that happened in the election with Aaron and his team really caused people to be frustrated. But I, you know, I, I don't think that was the best way to handle things and that he should have probably been given a little bit longer of an opportunity, given that we were in the pandemic and we're still in the pandemic. It doesn't give uh, voters a long time to familiarize themselves. And and you hit on it. The pandemic didn't really allow that. There wasn't a lot of in-person stuff. It all felt like a scramble in uh, in August and September. And and so I think I think parties can make two mistakes. They can stay with their leader too long. Look, I I think you'd look at us here in Ontario and say the liberals probably did that in 2018 with with Kathleen Wynne. Like you got to get out of the way. Brian Mulroney did that in 93, didn't he? You got to get out of the way of the train. You got to serve your time. Nothing is is eternal. That's not what we do. Um, and and you, like there is a there is a window. There's a window. Do what you can in that window. But but then again, there's the other way around, which is just being impatient. And 
Yeah. You, you tell me if I'm right. The liberals love this. They love the idea that the conservatives don't stick with a leader for very long. They love the idea. It feels like there's a bit of chaos and disorder in the party. You, you make it easy for them when that happens. Yeah, I agree with you. So now with Pierre, um, a lot of people are making the point about his crowds and they're calling him a pop. I don't think a populist is a bad thing. Bill Clinton was a populist. John F. Kennedy was a populist, like saying making people feel important feels like that's that's in essence populism. But is there a fear that when I look up and down the 401 corridor and you look in the GTA and even where you are in Quebec, are there enough seats that could turn red to blue with Pierre Polyev? I don't know, and I think that's going to have to be seen a little later. Personally, I haven't decided to endorse any one candidate until the debates. I think the debates are going to be very interesting because, again, I don't like getting my news from the headlines. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to believe what I see from the candidates in their prepared speeches or their stump speeches. I want to see them on their feet. I want to see them in action. I want to see how they deal with each other and how they're able to answer each other and deal with uh, conflict that they see in those debates. And so... I'm going to wait and see. I, th- I hope Canadians I th- can do the same. I think, and you make a great point about about those conversations you have on someone's doorstep. And and I've I've realized. I mean, I realized that probably early days with social media that it, it's got its purposes, but it sure isn't a. It's an echo chamber for all of us, and it sure isn't Correct. a gauge of how people are feeling. First of all, seventy four percent of people aren't even on it, and they don't bother with it. And you're a lot more likely to get honesty. I'll tell you when we set up a text line for our show, we get pretty honest texts that people aren't willing to say on social media and it doesn't mean they're offensive um it doesn't mean they're uh you know they're, they're insensitive values but i think there's a little bit of project <laughs> there's a little bit of projection on these sites that don't exist in the real world i think that's fair to say well i mean you know twitter is a perfect example you you it's really not the real world right you can see a lot of things on twitter but that's not real and that's not how most people talk or think or <laughs> anything <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that when when the U.S. had the the mask mandate lifted last week, right? Like it's like you can't even fall in the middle here and go, well, I might still wear it in certain pl-. like it, it's oh, yeah. you, you just pick pick one lane or the other, and they're miles apart. And people seemed a little bit afraid to say, "This is what I want to do. I did what I was supposed to do. I feel like my danger's over. This is what I'm going to do." And then there have been so much of that the last two years, like this person's selfish, this person's insensitive, and. It doesn't, it doesn't help our discourse. It doesn't help our debate about real issues. Well, and that's why I like the whole concept of centerized conservatives. We really want a platform where people who want to find out more about the Conservative Party and other things that are going on in politics outside of an election year, this is a great place to go. This is a great platform for us to put out information that really will inform people and not just give them those little bullets. Uh, for people to hang their hat on, but really find out what's going on. Because I felt that in an, in an election, you know, we're mm-hmm. bombarded. That's suddenly when politics becomes front and center. But again, that's not real. Most people on the day-to-day, they don't have their eyes on what's going on in politics. They're just seeing the headlines. And it's only in an election when, you know, it all blows up. And that's not mm-hmm. fair to Canadians. And this is a great opportunity for us to sort of say, listen, this is really what it comes down to. Break some things down. Mm-hmm. Provide some proper information, inform Canadians about certain conservative values or certain conservative opinions. The other thing is people brush every team with the same brush. They think that all conservatives are the same or all liberals. Are yeah. Different. Yeah. We know that's not true. Yeah. There are lots of different people who come at things from different backgrounds, different perspectives. Yep. They may all be pulling towards this. Well, hopefully pulling towards the same area. But we have different styles and different opinions on how the best way to do that is. Yeah. The group is Centerized Conservatives and Francis is joining us. I hope you'll come back on again. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And Francis. I want to welcome on uh, education critic for the NDP and MPP for Davenport. She is Merritt Stiles. I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for making the time. By the way, you deserve some better weather. Anybody running for public office deserves... (laughs) Better, like it's five degrees and rainy. You you deserve a lot more days like Sunday when you're going door to door. I see you out there. You need some 18, 19 degree temperatures, Merritt. This isn't right. I hope somebody hears you, but it's better than snow. As long as it's not snow, I'm okay. Yeah, sp- well, spring and summer elections are, uh, are are sort of geared towards that, but we're all still uh, all sort of waiting. When uh, when I mentioned that that wish list, give me the give me the one or two things that absolutely top priority for this party, and 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 that are feasible and that are doable if you're elected. 
Yeah, I would say, well, first of all, it, it's a very comprehensive plan. Um, but the, probably the biggest focus and, and the thing that I think most Ontarians are, are really desperate for is fixing and expanding health care, making life more affordable, um, you know, reducing class sizes, something I'm really uh, passionate about, and, and moving fast on things like dental care. I think you and I have talked. You yeah, I've talked so much about class sizes, and I think we forget if we wind the clocks back pre-pandemic, we were having some struggles. Um, and and the uh, the provincial uh, obviously there were uh, you know revolving days of action. There were strike days. Uh, you know, I got one kid in, one kid out. We were dealing with that right prior to the pandemic. I, obviously, pandemic aside, and it's hard to put it aside. Those issues have only been exacerbated over the last two and a half years. It's, it's so true. I mean, class sizes have gone up. Of course, we know that with the pandemic, that made no sense at all. Uh, but that's the plan for this government. And, you know, we had 15 years as well, let's not forget, of liberals where class sizes increased. We're saying, look, uh, we need to reduce class sizes, especially the, the, the grades that are really impacted right now are four to eight. Bring them down to 24 maximum and then work to reduce the high school classes as well, because our kids for sure need the extra support right now. Merritt Stiles is our guest on 640 Toronto on Toronto today uh, with Greg Brady. Some people are saying now, and I understand why some people are saying, what's the, what, what, how's, when the bill comes, how do you pay for it? But you want to see, get, give the, our audience an insight as to why you need to see the Ford government's budget on Thursday before those kind of calculations are put out to the general public before they decide whether to vote for you or not. Why do you need to see the budget? Yeah, well, like a lot of governments, these guys aren't very transparent about things. So when you get the budget, that's when you get a better sense of what kind of revenue they're expecting to bring in um, and the cost of other programs that already exist. We need to see that. Now, we didn't want to wait around, though, because this government, they were supposed to bring that budget in a while back. It was actually legislation that said they had to bring it in. They changed the law so they could postpone it. Um, But we thought, you know what, Like, let's not wait around. People, I tell you, people on the doorsteps are desperate to know what the plan is. They want to get rid of these guys and they want to know what we're going to do because we're in the best place to defeat them. And so I think that when you start, yeah, certainly when you start talking about big programs, like we're talking about doing away with for-profit long-term care and, and really expanding uh, home care uh, so people can, can age in their homes, you know, and stay there. Uh, those, are, those are the things that are going to be significant investments, but they're going to pay off in the long term. But we do need to see that budget on Thursday in order to be able to just fully cost it all out. There's obviously some criticism of some of the promises um, Doug Ford's making, some of the, the, the rebates he's giving. But your party right now would not turn around the rebate of the license plate fees. Um, the liberals say they would. The NDP says they wouldn't. Why, why stick with the Ford government here and say, yeah, we, we won't do that? You know what? These, uh, it, is, it is the most crass attempt to buy an election I can recall in recent years. And it's despicable. But I'll tell you, and, and I know a lot of people out there are getting their checks uh, and saying, you know what, I'm, life isn't is kind of unaffordable right now. I'm going to donate that check back to somebody. And I, and I, and I think that's great. Uh, but it is hard uh, to come back at, at a time when people are really hurting and, you know, roll back a, a, a money that's already in their in their pockets now right so there's lots of other things we can do but we do also have to acknowledge uh that we have to make life more affordable for people a lot of people out there are happy that we're talking about freezing taxes for the lower and middle income families but i got to tell you that is going to mean we are going to have to increase the taxes on some of the big corporations that made a lot of money off of this pandemic it's time they paid their fair share Merritt Stiles kind enough to join us on 640 Toronto I'd ask you about free tuition there's nothing I got and it's nothing you got but I do wonder shouldn't we be looking more at bursary shouldn't we be looking at more of the people that afford it I, I I don't I don't get the idea of making university free for people over a certain threshold let's say a quarter of a million dollars a year household income why would those kids uh, of those families go to university or college for free? Why don't we lower the bar a little bit and make it so that the people that really need free tuition can can get free tuition? It, it feels like a little bit of a uh, it, it's the same as a gas tax, really. There's people that need a break at the pump a lot more than others. Well, what we're talking about actually is is, is taking what are the loans right now and converting them to grants so that students can graduate debt-free, right? So we acknowledge that some people will need more help than others. And we also are saying, look, it's time that we invested in post-secondary education so that universities and colleges don't have to rack up the tuition to absolutely unreasonable levels. 
um, and then our students graduate with massive debt. So actually what we're saying is we're going to reinvest in the Ontario's the OSAP program mm. and focus on converting those loans, though, to grants and bursaries instead. So do more kids get eligible for OSAP and do they get eligible earlier on, depending on the economic threshold of the family? Yeah, so I think that that's one of the things we'll be looking at is who who qualifies and when. Um, but for sure, I mean, the point here is to acknowledge that there are some kids who some young people and, and people coming back into into post-secondary who need the assistance. Um, but, you know, overall, what we're finding is that tuition has just skyrocketed. It's become unaffordable for, for most families. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, you get this really high number percentage of young people who are all graduating with impossible debts. And then coming into a workforce that where they're not necessarily being paid more than they were 15 years ago, uh, mm. you know, their, 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 their salaries haven't gone up. Re- meanwhile, rent has just skyrocketed. The cost of living is skyrocketing. So we need to adjust a little bit here to something more reasonable so that uh, those folks who are graduating, coming into the workforce, uh, have, have a chance. A shot. I think I think you make it great. But now I feel like you're closer to this uh, threshold than me. My oldest is 16. I feel like you have a daughter a year or two older than my son. Yeah, I I've got one in university now and another one going in. So I'm feeling this crunch. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. And a lot of a lot of people listening are like I'd make the case. Canadian tuition has almost held. It's certainly held well below the rate of inflation. But you make the point that public transportation, food, rent, clothes, kids like clothes, all these things, all these necessities of life are expensive i'd rather i'd rather they rode the ttc for free or the go train for free if they're going to a to a gta school or they get a bus pass if they go to london or kitchener for school i I, i'd rather i I think those things are really vital to help kids out because i think parents brace themselves like you and i do for tuition but then it's the cost of living that's going to get them these next few years yeah, that's for sure. You know, you got to look at the whole package. But I will say, you know, Ontario does actually have some of the highest undergraduate um, and graduate tuition fees in Canada. Like ours are 45% higher than the rest of Canada's average. So they've actually, you know, skyrocketed in the last 12 years. And and that it, they have actually become much more expensive than in many other parts of the country. So we are paying far more than we, we probably should. And that's because Ontario doesn't invest. We don't, we give much less per student to universities and colleges. So we really do need to adjust that back. But I hear you. I mean, it's, it's an affordability issue everywhere, right? And it means also like finding ways to support um, young workers who tend to unfortunately come into uh, the workplace in more precarious jobs. You know, how can we support those workers? How can we reduce the, 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 the burden on them so they're not, uh, they're not graduating with a massive debt. Um, these are all things that we need to be thinking about. So NDP education critic, you've held Stephen Lecce and Doug Ford to account for a lot of what we've dealt with with, with public education. This is what I hear, and I want to know if you hear this on doorsteps too. I got all day for being critical. I had parents who were teachers. I'm a huge supporter of public education. That's the only element of education my kids will ever be in. But but what I hear from prospective voters is they'll, they'll, they'll lay a lot of the doorstep of, of the provincial government They'll lay some at the teachers' unions as well for not not going back into school in January. I got these these quotes. Karen Brown of the ETFO says she thinks parents should brace themselves for a lot of interruptions when we back in when we went back in mid January. Well, that didn't happen. Carol Littlewood with the OSSTF thinks the teachers are being used to create herd immunity. Well, that's not really true either. Like I I I, I hear that from voters. I want to know if you're hearing that same thing. There's a level of frustration on a lot of sides with the fact Ontario had more learning loss that more schools closed longer than any other jurisdiction in North America. It's not right. Well, that that's on the government though. That's definitely on the government that piece cuz uh, even the teachers unions were saying, you know, we don't we want to go back to safer classrooms. So they were pushing for masking and smaller class sizes and supports, but back in the classroom. Because they, they knew that online thing was not working for a lot of students. But um, I will say what I'm hearing is, yes, the disruption is really still very significant. And the, but the reason for that is, without question, that, that people are sick. Those, those mm-hmm. staff, education workers, teachers, EAs are, are off and they're sick. And it's hard to get um, the substitutes in there as well, the occasional occasional teachers because they're sick <laughs> and what we're ending up having is is a lot of people uh in our classrooms who are not certified and to be honest what i hear from students is they're spending a lot of time doing you know hangman 
right? So it's not, it's actually not working, but I, I really put the blame there on, on squarely on the feet of the government. Um, this is why we do need to be careful how we bring people back. And if you're not willing to, you know, continue to create some at least small improvements, like, my goodness, if we could have a little bit more space, smaller class sizes, that would have made a big difference. But look, um, yeah, we are definitely in a, in a staffing crisis right now in healthcare in education. And we need a government that's willing to invest now to, to bring those people back, but also to make those careers, frankly, um, feel like they're more respected. Because who's going to want to come and work in, uh, in long-term care right now? And the way those people have been treated, it's, out, it's outrageous. We need a system that respects those workers, um, that, that makes their lives a little better, um, that provides them with the working conditions they need. We need to make sure that we're investing in the well, actual people who live in those facilities and make sure their caregivers so, are, are recognized. So I'm going to make this a little late, but I have to ask, how do you attract, how does the NDP attract 10,000 new PSWs with only a small hourly wage increase? To me, I go, you got to make this a career for people. You got to make it like a nurse or like an entry-level teacher, or we can't get good people to stay in that industry merit yeah yeah we 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 can have uh more staff but we need to give them more time they want they're telling us what they want they're saying Mm. we're so short-staffed and our residents are getting neglected like we don't want to be part of this i mean they saw those people dying in terrible ways so we need to make this a more uh attractive uh work for them and that means ensuring, for example, that they can, they can spend the time, the minimum four hours of care that they need uh, to spend. We need to make sure that they can get the wage increases that they need in a time when uh, costs yeah. are, are skyrocketing. And we need to stop this revolving door of really underpaid part-time workers who are run off their feet. And I really believe that that is going to be, we're going to have to make a big push, and that's a big part of our uh, platform. Uh, which I'm really proud of. It has to happen. It has to happen. Let's. I love. I love that you made time for me and our listeners. Let's have another chat before June second, Merritt. I appreciate the time. Of course. Thank you so much. Uh, Anthony Fury, Post Media columnist in the Toronto Sun. Here's your latest digital. Well, this is a couple of days ago. Digital IDs, and I don't know if you ever saw the late great Norm Macdonald, who made the point. Anthony, the I stands for I, and the D stands for identification. Um, but digital IDs. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's no. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, j- digital IDs just the beginning. Canadians need to think hard about these issues. It's one thing if it's optional. It's one thing, right? If people can still, I feel nervous even when I've got a concert ticket on my phone, or a, I still hate putting a boarding pass on my phone. Options are good things. Is the fear that that this is going to be made mandatory and then everybody has to buy in and, and then we're we're just slaves to technology and there's concerns about tracking and hacking. Yeah, sure. I mean, those are the concerns in a nutshell because when the private sector does it, when they say, look, you used to uh, line up at Sunrise Records, you get that physical ticket to see the Backstreet Boys, you protect that like it's gold. Oh, now it's in your phone. There you go. Okay, fine. I show up at the Air Canada Centre uh, with that digital wallet, I'm always nervous about that because I'm like, what if my phone suddenly dies? Mm-hmm. I had a phone for a while that was always dying on me. Those sort of nervousness. Fine, private sector deal, tickets to a concert. But when you're talking about the government doing it, well, everything changes. Your concerns change. I mean, what we're seeing in China is, is pretty wild in terms of their social credit system and the central government uh, tracks so much of what you do, pretty much your whole digital life, and then they use it uh, to allow or deny you access to many different things in society. And people go, well, could we become like that? Based on what the Ontario government and Alberta and a couple other provinces have announced, no, it's absolutely nowhere near that. And what the digital ID mm. has proposed is, is just kind of to make things more convenient because so many private services are already online and on your phone. Uh, why can't government play catch up? Why can't government provide the same innovations? Fine, good. And I think a lot of people would welcome all of that. But the question is, are we going to see mission creep? I think, of course, we are. In the past two years, we have seen so many examples of, say, Doug Ford saying, vaccine passport, I don't want to create a split society. Are you crazy? I'm never going to do that. Three months later, something happens. So what is the mission creep going to be with something like digital ID? And uh, whether or not you have the more sort of outlandish concerns about this or, or, or you embrace it, 
We need to have the conversation, Greg, because yeah. we haven't had the conversation. I think we we kind of crowd tested it earlier. She and I talked about it in the six o'clock hour and just the concept. You know, she kind of hesitated. I did. And a few of our listeners weighed in as well. When you get stopped for a speeding ticket or a traffic violation, handing your phone to the cop and having him or her walk back to the car for 10, 11 minutes is a bit of a weird feeling that we wouldn't be used to. There you go. There are just so many examples. So the government emphatically on their website at first starts talking about what this is not. And they, they use all caps, which you normally see in, the, in government releases. They say this is not a tracking device. This is not centrally stored information. Okay, cool. Will it be, though? Is it set up in such a way that if you flick a switch, those things that you've assured me aren't going to happen, they suddenly can happen? I interviewed Ann Kavukian, who was Ontario's privacy commissioner for multiple terms. And she says, I ain't getting a digital ID. And she predicts that hackers are going to go in, take information, do identity theft. So that's just one other concern. Mm-hmm. And, and she predicts there might be uh, a bit less of a voluntary opt-in for this mm-hmm. once these stories start materializing. Who knows? The problem is it is just such an unknown terrain because when you start putting your banking information, your vaccine records, your driver's license, your passport, which they're all talking about, that's a lot different than just talking about Mm. your Backstreet Boys tickets for next Friday night. Well, again, how'd you know? And uh, secondly, yeah, I was going to surprise you with them, but, uh, you know, I was just waiting it out. And, you know, it's great that they've stayed together all these years. That's that was my perspective on that. Um, let me uh, kids on the block. It's like a combo. It's like a nine, nine letter. Oh, no. It's uh, yeah. New kids. Uh, Rick Astley, Salt and Pepper. They're all together uh, uh, this summer, man. I'm uh, I'm not missing that show. I'll be outside. Maybe there's a Jurassic Park where I can watch it on video and then not go in and and uh, and pay the pay the big prices. Um, I want to get to I want to get to the Stephen Del Duca promise that you might have seen it's in the star this morning. But give me a read. Give me what you liked and what you didn't like from the Andrea Horvath platform. This is her fourth election. Like she's a veteran at laying this out. Um, give me give me something that you think will appeal to voters and something that is going to raise question marks. Well, yeah, she's a veteran at being leader for a long time and having lost multiple elections. So let's see what they have learned throughout those previous elections. I mean, I like that they talk about uh, fast tracking the hiring of nurses. I think a lot of people mistakenly thought that the January lockdown in Ontario was because, uh, oh, no, we don't want anybody to get COVID. you got to close the schools because of kids getting it, close the gyms because of uh, healthy people in their 20s getting it. No, no, no. The whole reason there's that January lockdown is we might get 300 people in ICUs. Oh, how are we going to deal with that? Do we have the beds? Well, yeah, we kind of have the beds. We just don't have enough staff to staff those beds. That's why we shut down society and all those harms that that lockdown brought. I said, well, just bring in more nurses. Oh, it's not that easy. What do you mean it's not that easy? We pay... So many healthcare execs, hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage the system. They couldn't figure out the hiring of nurses. So that's got to be a priority. And and I think uh, the NDP is right on all of that. Where I'm concerned is a lot of their economic positions, talking about uh, really jacking up the minimum wage and then guaranteeing it'll go up every year. Talking about mandating affordable housing, such that the government's really getting involved in the housing sector. That is all going to distort the economy. It's going to mess with inflation already. One of the whole reasons we're in such a mess right now uh, with inflation and everything that's going on is because COVID was about micromanaging the economy. Stay home. Can't do this. Billions of dollars to this person. Nothing to that person. Redirecting this and that. And we've, you know, we've messed with a very delicate system that, that has to be open source and has to be free market. So I think these things will just worsen the situation, what Andrew Horvath's proposing. It's interesting. Yeah. I wonder about the PSWs. I don't know how you're going to find 10,000 new people to take on that job at this time um, in our society by just giving them a couple bucks extra an hour. I mean, it's, they're not doing it for Doug Ford. They don't want to do it for Doug Ford. They don't, they're not going to want to do it for either Andrea or, or Steven. I look and yeah, Sweden's Sweden's fantastic. We reference it a lot. We've certainly referenced it a lot with uh, their success post-vaccination in the pandemic. They pay their uh, long-term care workers Five thousand six hundred Canadian dollars a month. You're making. You're guaranteed a salary of around sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars. It's lower than your than your entry level um, teacher position, but people would sign up for that. And and God knows, like you're saving on the back end by constantly replacing people over and over again. I do, like this. Just makes too much sense to me, and it's too important an industry. We're all going to get old. 
I heard crazy stories of the bonus pay that doctors were getting throughout COVID and even well into when uh, they knew that they didn't need to fear for their lives being on shift, which they did, you know, back in the first wave. Mm. Doctors who were getting things like getting paid $600 an hour to just be on call at the hospital overnight, and they spent the whole time playing Wordle on, on their phone. These are exact, I'm not knocking them. These are exact examples doctors told me about. So they got, they got multiple times over bonus pay. Nurses who were getting paid whatever their hourly rate pre-pandemic still being paid the same hourly wage, uh, wage during the pandemic, despite the doctors who actually weren't doing anything, but the nurses were doing all the heavy lifting, getting the same money. So I know a lot of them left because they were just feeling disrespected. And I do mm. think the government and the health execs really failed to manage that. I got 45 seconds. Stephen Del Duca says, I'm going to buy out all private long-term care homes by 2028. I don't think it's impossible, but it certainly is ambitious. And he's the first of his kind to say that he'll do it. What's your thought on that? Well, you know, there's a reason why it's set up the way it's set up right now. Are we going to be able to provide the level of care and the level of, of options of care that I think people want for their family members, for their parents, and for their grandparents. And do we want to talk about long-term care as something that really gets rolled into the health system and the health ministry, which, as I said, those people can't even manage 300 people in an ICU bed, and supposedly we got to shut down uh, the kindergartens because there's 300 people in ICU. Yeah. So are these same bureaucrats going to be able to manage long-term care? I don't know. Anthony Fury, our guest uh, from the Toronto Sun. By the way, why don't you publish some of those crazy stories about the doctors? I'm, I'd read them. I'll, 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 uh, let's get those crazy stories. And, and uh, it wouldn't be your first crazy story, Anthony. Let's go. No joke, Greg, though. You know, there's, there's a lot of sort of quasi whistleblowers out there who, who have wanted to say things against the grain, but they've been nervous for blowback. You know, there's voices on, on social media who are more than happy yeah. to do the alarmist stuff. But a lot of voices, doctor voices, are nervous about the bullying and the blowback if they uh, offer another narrative. It's true. It's, uh, they're getting louder now, but uh, but we're pretty late in the process to be uh, to be getting loud, uh, given where we are. Anthony, love our conversations. Thanks very much. Likewise. Thank you, sir. So uh, a friend of mine in the UK is, uh, I, I told him, uh, we may get a digital identity scheme. Uh, they're on their way for that. That's what it's called in the United Kingdom, a Nash, an NDI, a national digital identity. So uh, you would get it for everything uh, on your phone. You would show, a, you know, to buy, to ID, to buy a drink for younger people, or if you're starting a new job or you're moving ahead, your mortgage would be on your phone, like not just how much you owe, but the actual mortgage would be on your phone. So that's via a phone app or a website you bring up on the phone. And Ontario thinking about the same thing. And we kind of went through this a little bit. Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. Um, we kind of went through this a little bit getting, you know, getting used to showing vaccine passports and showing our kids vaccine passports and showing these are my shots here. These are my shots there. And then taking a photo of yourself on. So it's on your phone as well, just because think about how much hassle, right? Gym, restaurant, movies. We were doing this for felt like months on end, weren't we? Everywhere, too. Yeah. And it was I found it such an inconvenience, to be honest with you. It was. It's a lot to keep track of. And then I remember I think I told you I was at the movie once with a kid who didn't have. He just yes. had a photo of, I think, his second shot. And they're like, now nah, we need the QR code. So we're like, good thing we got there early because we're like 18 minutes out. He's trying to text his mom. She's got, like, oh, my God, I'm free on a Sunday afternoon. My kid's gone and I'm bugging her for for a QR code. Like, I hated it. I hated every second of it, but I understood it. This this would be a different thing in that we'd, we'd use it for not just Vax records, but everything that is in our wallet or purse or pocketbook right now. Almost everything goes right onto the phone. Almost everything. On one hand, I find that really convenient, right? I mean, everywhere you go, you always you have all these cards. You have your health card. You have your driver's license. You have all this and that. And putting it all on one device, that would simplify things for me. I mean, you just pull it out. You've got everything there. You haven't forgotten anything when somebody asks you for something. But I have questions and I have concerns about this. I mean, like, is this going to be mandatory for people? What about people who don't have a cell phone? What if people who don't know how to, my dad doesn't know how to use a cell phone anymore. We had to cut that off because it just sits there. He can't use that. Um, when will they make exceptions? Is it only for elderly people? And for me, I hate being attached to my tech. So when we have these mm -hmm. vaccine passports and you have to show them everywhere, when I go out for dinner, when I go out with a friend, when I go out to catch up with somebody, I hate having my cell phone on the table. I hate even having it in my purse. I Usually I'll just leave it in my car uh, because I want to be completely detached. And granted, I have an Apple Watch. So if there's an emergency or something, I, my my phone will ring. You'll get buzzed watch. about it, right? I will, yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, just being away from the text messaging, from the alerts, from Twitter, all of that, I like to be in tune with whoever I'm sitting with and just focused on that. Uh, so now I have to, ca- I have to carry my phone with me everywhere I go. It's like a vaccine passport all over again. Uh, and what about security and safety breaches? Right. I, I mean, somebody hacks into it. They have access to all of your information. That's worrisome. Yeah. I mean, all that biometric data isn't 100 percent safe. Look, you, it, your wallet is your wallet and your purse is your purse. And if you lose it, you lose it. And we know um, w- we know you got to scramble and start making phone calls and canceling things. Everybody's been through that. Everybody's, I lose my bank card or my visa card probably, my God, four times a year. And the, no, you don't. I do easily. <laughs> I'll tell you what the problem is, is coming in here and then you put one card. You don't want to carry your wallet in here. And then so you carry one card, but then you stick it in a pocket. You go back and you're like, I literally my I did this in front of my wife the other day on Friday when we were going out and I had opened an envelope from uh, from my bank. I won't even say who it is. I open an envelope for my bank with a new card. The second later, I'm putting on my coat and I reach into my left coat pocket. There's the card I just replaced it with. I mean, no word of a lie. That's the irony of I just found the card (laughs) that I didn't really look that hard for. I just was like, I don't know where it is. And then you click it and so easy on your phone to do that. But to make that point, you can't hack a paper birth certificate. You can't hack a, uh, a driver's license, but you sure can hack a digital ID. And if you lose your phone, at least you say to yourself, here's what's not on there, a physical credit card, right? Yes. Your driver's license, your health well, card, your SIN number, cards. all that stuff. Well, I mean, it's possible right now to put your card on your phone, right? You have Apple Pay, you have all these things. You can just... But, but you need I, I a were... fingerprint usually to access a lot of it. You can put yeah, a lot of security true. on there to help you out, help you out. That's true. And then also, where does it stop? So now that we put all of our information on our phones, what's next? What are they going to ask for next? I just, I just feel like where is the line? Where can you say no? And is this going to be mandatory? And I have so many questions. Let's see how they unroll this. And I know that Saskatchewan had tried this, right? They had yeah. decided they're going to go to digital IDs and then they had pulled back and they want to see how other provinces fare with this. So where are the guinea pigs? Right. And how about and how about an outage? How about any kind of Internet outage? You got rural areas where Internet is really spotty. We've all driven through. uh, There's always that section. Even when I ride the GO train, there's about a 15 minute section where I know my service is going to be spotty coming east into downtown. And I think you make a great point, Sheba. If if you make this optional, that's great. Mandatory. It's a weird be weird thing to be stopped by a cop for, you know, uh, a wrong, uh, you know, a right turn on a light that you can't or speeding and you hand him your phone. And unlock it for him or her, and they walk back to the car, and you're sitting there for 15 minutes. That would be a little bit of an eerie feeling, and I'm not sure cops even want that. Oh, there's no way. Yeah, that that would never. No, there's got to be. I didn't even think of that. No, there's no way someone's going to give an unlock phone to a police officer so they can just go through everything for whatever reason. That's like a that, what a breach of your privacy. I won't do that with my mother. I don't want her having <laughs> access to my phone. <laughs> Nevertheless, police officer, no. Well, I wonder if they do that now with with insurance. Like, can you put your insurance and ownership on a phone and tell a police officer? I like I don't know the answer to this. Could you put all that uh, as just? Or do they need the hard copy? Gordy, any idea on that? I I know with you're, my you're insurance pretty regularly. Yeah. <laughs> With my insurance, um, I can show them the the insurance slip on my phone through the app of, oh. of the insurance company. But are you sure a police police uh, officer is okay with that? They say it's a legal document. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about no, that. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure you could just take a picture of your driver's license. I think you need. No, yeah. They'll give you a ticket if you don't have that physical yeah. license because the they need because they need to swipe it right. Yeah. Same thing with a passport, Shiva. I mean, I I like constantly am wondering about that. I don't want a passport on my phone. I would yeah. never want that. So that's more. That's more a national thing. If Ontario's talking about all the ID cards that are provincially distributed is ends up being on your phone. For security reasons, though, you wouldn't want it on your phone. No. Right? But think about the convenience. I'm with you on that. But just the convenience when you travel and you have to put your passport into, you know, the, the hotel safe or if you're staying at, you know, a house or an Airbnb or wherever it is, you have to just always keep an eye on that passport. Otherwise, you're screwed. So just at what, on the other hand, having it on your phone would be quite convenient unless you lose the phone or it gets stolen, which has happened to but me. But I just so. feel like that I, I know it's a hassle to replace everything you might lose in your phone. But if your phone like die, you lose your phone and your birth certificates on there. What's the next step? What's the next step to getting it back at that point? Do you need to buy a new phone before they'll give you a birth certificate someday? Well, that's a pain because those those that process takes three or four days anyway. So, so I don't have these questions. answers. Yeah. So many questions. So Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow morning on Wednesday, 5.30 to 9. You can hear it on the Radio Player Canada app or at 6.40 Toronto.
Thanks so much for finding us. We'll talk to you soon.